My name is Michael Allen, and I work at Politics and Prose. On behalf of the owners, Barbara Mead and Carl Cohen, and the staff of the bookstore, I want to welcome you here this evening. I also want to thank you. It's not every day that an intimate, interior, and essentially solitary act, like reading an ambitious book, results in conversations about the fire marshal and the hiring of a large venue. Um, your presence here is a reassuring testimony to the continuing centrality of reading. Fundamentally, though, it is testimony to a great and needed novel and its author. Jonathan Franzen's freedom has already been the subject of so many millions of pixels, gallons of ink, hours of video, and God help us, innumerable tweets, that I feel comfortable letting most of its excellency speak for itself. I do, however, want to say very briefly uh, why I read and reread Freedom, stayed up late talking about it with friends, pressed in people's hands with an evangelical and maybe slightly crazed enthusiasm. Early in the novel, Patty, Freedom's determined, sorrowing center of gravity, says, there are few things harder to imagine than other people's conversations about yourself. With delicacy, guile, and skill, Jonathan Franzen invites and insinuates the reader into the headspace of each of his principal characters, only to shift perspective to another. The effect, I think, promotes a sense of psychological vertigo and an enlargement of our sympathies. America is the land of self-realization, but this wonderful novel reminds us how desperately undefended we are against the perceptions of others. There is so much to like about this book, its keen demonstration of how the panics and emergencies of our time form and deform the limits of character, its squaring of the postmodern realist circle by making the frame narrative, a device as old as the novel, go off like a depth charge. Before Freedom, I never read anything so psychologically persuasive about someone doing something terrible, knowing it to be terrible at the time, and persisting anyway, or how paradoxical, unlikely, and even unwholesome the springs of loyalty and goodness can be. Most of all, though, I am moved by the persuasive creation of consciousness on the page and the characters of freedom. How, as George Eliot wrote, with dim lights and tangled circumstance, they tried to shape their thought and deed into noble, into noble agreement, or just tried to figure out how to live. It is a huge pleasure and a huge privilege to introduce Jonathan Franzen. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Thanks. I could see you all until I stepped into these bright lights. So hi, thank you for coming out. And now I can't see you, which might be better. There are many reasons I wish I were walking on stage with a guitar rather than a book. Apart from the obvious bad reason not to do that, which is that I don't play the guitar well. But um, if you do that, you don't have to have such lengthy instructions about how to interact with me. Um, it's fairly straightforward. Anyway, I'm going to read to you for a while um, from a book that's very hard to read aloud from. I'm going to read what I think may be the shortest chapter, and I'm going to take as much out of it as I possibly can. But it will still go on a little while. Sorry. This is a vast space. 
So really, you don't need to know much. Actually, you know, it's nice to be at, at George Washington because the only uh, good athlete in my extended family uh, was a collegiate volleyball player here, Sarah Bontas. Uh, I never saw her play. But um, the, one, the main female character of this book is a standout student athlete. And a good chunk of the book is narrated in the voice, the third person voice of her unpublished autobiography. Patty grew up in Westchester County, New York. She was the oldest of four children, the other three of whom were more like what her parents had been hoping for. She was notably larger than everybody else, also less unusual, also measurably dumber. Not actually dumb, but relatively dumber. She grew up to be five, nine and a half, which was almost the same as her brother and numerous inches taller than the others. And sometimes she wished she could have gone ahead and been six feet since she was never gonna fit into the family anyway. Being able to see the basket better and to post up in traffic and to rotate more freely on defense might have rendered her competitive streak somewhat less vicious, leading to a happier life post-college. Probably not, but it was interesting to think about. <clears throat> Patty's first memory of doing a team sport with her mother watching is also one of her last. She was attending ordinary person sports day camp at the same complex where her two sisters were doing extraordinary person arts day camp. And one day, her mother and sisters showed up for the late innings of a softball game. Patty was frustrated to be standing in left field while less skilled girls made errors in the infield, and she waited around for somebody to hit a ball deep. She started creeping in shallower and shallower, which was how the game ended, runners on first and second. The batter hit a bouncing ball to the grossly uncoordinated shortstop, whom Patty ran in front of so she could field the ball herself and run and tag out the lead runner and then start chasing the other runner, some sweet girl who'd probably reach first on a fielding error. Patty bore straight down at her, and the girl ran squealing into the outfield, leaving the base path for an automatic out. But Patty kept chasing her and applied the tag while the girl crumpled up and screamed with the apparently horrible pain of being lightly touched by a glove. <laughs> Patty was aware that it was not her finest hour of sportsmanship. Something had come over her because her family was watching. In the family station wagon, in an even more quavering voice than usual, her mother asked her if she had to be quite so aggressive. If it was necessary to be, well, to be so aggressive. Patty replied that she hadn't been getting any balls in left field, and her mother said, I don't mind if you play sports, but only if it's gonna teach you cooperation and community-mindedness. And Patty said, so send me to a real camp where I won't be the only good player. I can't cooperate with people who can't catch the ball. And her mother said, I'm not sure it's a good idea to be encouraging so much aggression and competition. I guess I'm not a sports fan, but I don't see the fun in defeating a person just for the sake of defeating them. Wouldn't it be much more fun to all work together to cooperatively build something? Patty's mother was a professional Democrat. She is even now, at the time of this writing, a state assemblywoman, the Honorable Joyce Emerson, known for her advocacy of open space, poor children, and the arts. Paradise for Joyce is an open space where poor children can go and do arts at state expense. <laughs> Joyce was, joined, was born Joyce Markowitz in Brooklyn in 1934, but apparently disliked being Jewish from the earliest dawn of consciousness. The autobiographer wonders if one reason why Joyce's voice always trembles is from struggling so hard all her life not to sound like Brooklyn. 
Joyce got a scholarship to study liberal arts in the woods of Maine, where she met Patty's exceedingly Gentile dad, whom she married at All Souls Unitarian Church on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. In the autobiographer's opinion, Patty had her first baby before she was emotionally prepared for motherhood, although the autobiographer herself perhaps ought not to cast stones in this regard. Skipping a bit on Joyce's political career. <clears throat> Patty's father, Ray Emerson, was a lawyer an amateur humorist whose repertory included fart jokes and mean parodies of his children's teachers, neighbors, and friends. A torment he particularly enjoyed inflicting on Patty was mimicking the Barbadian nanny, Eulalie, when she was just out of earshot, saying, stop the game now, stop the playin', etc., in a louder and louder voice until Patty ran from the dinner table in mortification and her siblings shrieked with excitement. Other amusing methods of tormenting Patty were to hide the family dog, Elmo, and pretend that Elmo had been euthanized while Patty was at late basketball practice. <laughs> or tease Patty about certain factual errors she'd made many years earlier, ask her how the kangaroos in Austria were doing, and whether she'd seen the latest novel by the famous contemporary writer Louisa May Alcott, and whether she still thought funguses were part of the animal kingdom. I saw one of Patty's funguses chasing a truck the other day, her father would say. Look, look at me, look, this is how Patty's fungus chases a truck. Most nights her dad left the house again after dinner to meet with poor people he was defending in court for little or no money. He had an office across the street from the courthouse in White Plains. Some of his clients were in such bad trouble he didn't even make fun of them behind their backs. As much as possible, though, he found their troubles amusing. In 10th grade, for a school project, Patty sat in on two trials that her dad was part of. One was a case against an unemployed Yonkers man who drank too much on Puerto Rican Day, went looking for his wife's brother, intending to cut him with a knife, but couldn't find him and instead cut up a stranger in a bar. Not just her dad, but the judge and even the prosecutor seemed amused by the defendant's haplessness and stupidity. On the trade ride home, Patty asked her dad whose side he was on. Ha! <laughs> Good question, he answered. You have to understand, my client is a liar, the victim is a liar, and the bar owner is a liar. They're all liars. Of course, my client is entitled to a vigorous defense, but you have to try to serve justice, too. You've heard of our adversarial system of justice? Yes. Well, sometimes the PA and the judge and I all have the same adversary. We try to sort out the facts and avoid a miscarriage, although don't, uh, don't put that in your paper. I thought sorting out facts was what the grand jury and the jury are for. That's right. Put that in your paper. Trial by a jury of your peers. That's important. But most of your clients are innocent, right? Mommy says they have trouble with the language or the police aren't careful about who they arrest and there's prejudice against them and lack of opportunity. All of that is entirely true, Patty Cakes. Nevertheless, uh, your mother can be somewhat dewy-eyed. Patty minded his ridiculing less when her mother was the butt of it. I mean, you saw those people, he said to her. Jesus Christ, el ron me puso loco. An important fact about Ray's family was that it had a lot of money. Skipping several pages on that family. Her granddad had once been a true athlete, a college track star, and a football tight end, which was probably where her height and reflexes came from. Ray had also played football, but in Maine for a school that could barely field a team. His real game was tennis, which was the one sport Patty hated, although she was good at it. She believed that Bjorn Borg was secretly weak. 
With very few exceptions, she wasn't impressed with male athletes in general. Her specialty was crushes on popular boys enough older or better looking to be totally unrealistic choices. Being a very agreeable person, however, she went on dates with practically anybody who asked. She thought shy or unpopular boys had a hard life, and she took pity on them insofar as humanly possible. For some reason, many were wrestlers. As far as actual sex goes, Patty's first experience of it was being raped at a party when she was 17 by a boarding school senior named Ethan Post. Ethan didn't do any sports except golf, but he had six inches of height and 50 pounds on Patty and provided discouraging perspectives on female muscle strength as compared to men's. What he did to Patty didn't strike her as a gray area sort of rape. When she started fighting, she fought hard, if not too well, and only for so long because she was drunk for one of the first times ever. She'd been feeling so wonderfully free, very probably in the vast swimming pool at Kim McCluskey's on a beautiful warm May night, Patty had given Ethan Post a mistaken impression. She was far too agreeable even when she wasn't drunk. In the pool, she must have been giddy with agreeability. Altogether, there was much to blame herself for. Her notions of romance were like Gilligan's Island, as primitive as can be. They fell somewhere between Snow White and Nancy Drew. And Ethan undeniably had the arrogant look that attracted her at that point in time. He resembled the love interest from a girl's novel with sailboats on the cover. After he raped Patty, he said he was sorry it had been rougher than he'd meant it to be. He was sorry about that. It was only after the Pina Coladas wore off early the next morning in the bedroom which, being such an agreeable person, Patty shared with her little sister so that their middle sister could have her own room to be creative and messy in only then did she get indignant. The indignity was that Ethan had considered her such a nothing that he could just rape her and then take her home. And she was not such a nothing. She was, among other things, already as a junior, the all-time single season record holder for assists at Horace Greeley High School, a record she would again demolish the following year. She was also first team All-State in a state that included Brooklyn and the Bronx. And yet a golfing boy she hardly even knew had thought it was okay to rape her. To avoid waking her little sister, she went and cried in the shower. This was, without exaggeration, the most wretched hour of her life. Things that had never occurred to her before, such as the injustice of an oldest daughter having to share a room and not being given Eulalie's old room in the basement because it was now filled floor to ceiling with outdated campaign paraphernalia. Also the injustice of her mother being so enthralled about the middle daughter's thespian performances but never going to any of Patty's games occurred to her now. She was so indignant she almost felt like talking to somebody, but she was afraid to let her coach or teammates know she'd been drinking. How the story came out, in spite of her best efforts to keep it buried, was that Coach Nagel got suspicious and spied at her in the locker room after the next day's game, sat Patty down in her office and confronted her regarding her bruises and unhappy demeanor. Patty humiliated herself by immediately and sobbingly confessing to all. To her total shock, Coach then proposed taking her to the hospital and notifying the police. Patty had just gone three for four with two runs scored and several outstanding defensive plays. She obviously wasn't greatly harmed. Also, her parents were political friends of Ethan's parents, so that was a non-starter. She dared to hope that an abject apology for breaking training, combined with Coach's pity and leniency, would put the matter to rest. But oh, how wrong she was. 
Coach called Patty's house and got Patty's mother, who as always was breathless and running out to a meeting and had neither time to talk nor yet the moral wherewithal to admit that she didn't have time to talk. And Coach spoke these indelible words into the PE department's beige telephone. Your daughter just told me that she was raped last night by a boy named Ethan Post. Coach then listened to the phone for a minute before saying, no, she just now told me. That's right, just last night. Yes, she is, and handed Patty the telephone. Patty, her mother said, are you all right? I'm fine. Mrs. Nagel says there was an incident last night. The incident was I was raped. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, last night? Yes, I was home this morning. Why didn't you say something? I don't know. Why, 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 why didn't you say something to me? Maybe it just didn't seem like such a big deal right then. But so you did then tell Mrs. Nagel. No, Patty said, she's just more observant than you are. I hardly saw you this morning. I'm not blaming you, I'm just saying. And you think you might have been, it, it might have been raped. I can't believe this, her mother said. I'm gonna come out and get you. Coach Nagel wants me to go to the hospital. Are you not all right? I already said, I'm fine. Then just stay put and don't either of you do anything until I get there. Patty hung up the phone and told Coach that her mother was coming. We're going to put that boy in jail for a long, long time, Coach said. Oh, no, 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 Patty said. No, we're not. Patty, it's just not going to happen. If you want, it will if you want it to. No, actually, it won't. My parents and the posts are political friends. Listen to me, Coach said. That has nothing to do with anything. Do you understand? Patty was quite certain that Coach was wrong about this. Dr. Post was a cardiologist, and his wife was from Big Money. They had one of the houses that people such as Teddy Kennedy and Ed Muskie and Walter Mondale made visits to when they were short of funds. Over the years, Patty had heard much tell of the Post's backyard from her parents. This backyard was apparently about the size of Central Park, but nicer. Conceivably, one of Patty's straight-A, grade-skipping, arts-doing sisters could have brought trouble down on the Posts, but it was absurd to imagine the hulking B-student family jock making a dent in the Posts' armor. I'm just never going to drink again, she said, and that will solve the problem. Maybe for you, Coach said, but not for somebody else. Look at your arms. Look what he did. He'll do that to somebody else if you don't stop him. It's just scratches and bruises. Coach here made a motivational speak about standing up for your teammates, which in this case meant all the young women Ethan might ever meet. The upshot was that Patty was supposed to take a hard foul for the team and press charges and let Coach inform the New Hampshire prep school where Ethan was a student so he could be expelled and denied a, a diploma, and that if Patty didn't do this, she would be letting down her team. And Patty began to cry again because she would almost rather have died than let a team down. It was shocking to see her mother in the gym, and obviously shocking to her mother to find herself there. She was wearing her everyday pumps and resembled Goldilocks in daunting woods as she peered around uncertainly at the naked metal equipment and the fungal floors and the clustered balls and mesh bags. Patty went to her and submitted to embrace. Her mother being much smaller of frame, Patty felt somewhat like a grandfather clock that Joyce was endeavoring to lift and move. She broke away and led Joyce into Coach's little glass-walled office so that the necessary conference could be had. Hi, I'm Jane Nagel, Coach said. Yes, we've met, Joyce said. Oh, you're right, we did meet once, Coach said. No, it was more than once, Joyce said. It was several times. Really? I'm quite sure of it, 
I'll be outside, Patty said, closing the door behind her. The parent-coach conference didn't last long. Joyce soon came out on clicking heels and said, let's go. Coach, standing in the doorway behind Joyce, gave Patty a significant look. The look meant, don't forget what I said about teamwork. Joyce's car was the last one left in its quadrant of the visitor lot. She put the key in the ignition but didn't turn it. Patty asked what was going to happen now. Your father's at his office, Joyce said. We'll go straight there. But she didn't turn the key. I'm sorry about this, Patty said. What I don't understand, her mother burst out, is how such an outstanding athlete as you are. I mean, how could Ethan, or whoever it was, it was Ethan, Ethan. How could anybody, or Ethan, she said. You say it's pretty definitely Ethan. How, how could, if it's Ethan, how could he have... Her mother hid her mouth with her fingers. Oh, I wish it had been almost anybody else. Dr. and Mrs. Post are such good friends of good friends of so many good things, and I don't know Ethan well, but I hardly know him at all. Well, then how could this happen? Let's just go home. No, you have to tell me. I'm your mother. Hearing herself say this, Joyce looked embarrassed. She seemed to realize how peculiar it was to have to remind Patty who her mother was. And Patty, for one, was finally glad to have this doubt out in the open. If Joyce was her mother, then how would it happen that she hadn't come to the first round of the state tournament when Patty had broken the all-time Horace Greeley's girl tournament scoring record with 32 points? Somehow everybody else's mother had found time to come to that game. She showed Joyce her wrists. This is what happened, she said. I mean, part of what happened. Joyce looked once at her bruises, shuddered, and then turned away as if respecting Patty's privacy. This is terrible, she said. You're right. This is terrible. Coach Nagel says I should go to the emergency room and tell the police and tell Ethan's headmaster. Yes, I know what your coach wants. She seems to feel that castration might be an appropriate punishment. What I want to know is what you think. I don't know what I think. If you want, if you want to go to the police now, Joyce said, we'll go to the police. Just tell me if that's what you want. I guess we should tell Dad first. So down the Sawmill Parkway they went. Skipping a paragraph. Here's a hypothetical question, Joyce said, driving. Do you think it might be enough if Ethan formally apologized to you? He already apologized for, for being rough. And what did you say? I didn't say anything. I said I wanted to go home. But he did apologize for being rough. It wasn't a real apology. All right, I'll take your word for it. I just want him to know I exist. Whatever you want, sweetie. Joyce pronounced this sweetie like the first word of a foreign language she was learning. As a test or a punishment, Patty said, maybe, I guess, if he apologized in a really sincere way, that might be enough. And she looked carefully at her mother, who was struggling, it seemed to Patty, to contain her excitement. That sounds to me like a nearly ideal solution, Joyce said, but only if you really think it would be enough for you. It wouldn't, Patty said. I'm sorry? You said it wouldn't be enough. I, I thought you just said it would be. Patty began to cry again very desolately. I'm sorry, Joyce said. I did I misunderstand? He raped me like I was nothing. I'm probably not even the first. You don't know that, Patty. I want to go to the hospital. Look, here, we're almost at Daddy's office. Unless you're actually hurt, we might as well as... But I already know what he'll say. I know what he'll want me to do. He'll want to do whatever's best for you. Sometimes it's hard for him to express it, but he loves you more than anything. Joyce could hardly have made a statement Patty more fervently longed to believe was true. 
wished with her whole being was true? Didn't her dad tease her and ridicule her in ways that would have been simply cruel if he didn't secretly love her more than anything? But she was 17 now and not actually dumb. She knew that you could love somebody more than anything and still not love the person all that much if you were busy with other things. What a rotten little shit was Ray's response to the tidings his daughter and wife brought of Ethan Post's crime. <laughs> not so little, unfortunately, Joyce said with a dry laugh. He's a rotten little shit punk, Ray said. He's a bad seed. So did we go to the hospital now, Patty said, or did the police? Her father told her mother to call Dr. Sipperstein, the old pediatrician who'd been involved in democratic politics since Roosevelt, and see if he was available for an emergency. While Joyce made this call, Ray asked Patty if she knew what rape was. She stared at him. Just checking, he said. You do know the actual legal definition. He had sex with me against my will. Then he is a despicable piece of shit. She'd never heard her father talk this way, and she appreciated it, but only abstractly because it didn't sound like him. Dave Sipperstein says he can meet us at the office at, at 5, Joyce reported. He's so fond of Patty, I think he would have canceled his dinner plans if he'd had to. Right, Patty said. I'm sure I'm number one among his 12,000 patients. She then told her dad her story, and her dad explained to her why Coach Nagel was wrong, and she couldn't go to the police. Chester Post's not an easy person, Ray said, but he does a lot of good in the county. Uh, given, his, given his position, an accusation like this is going to generate extraordinary publicity. Everyone will know who the accuser is. Everyone. Now, what's bad for the Post's is not your concern, but it's virtually certain you'll end up feeling more violated by the pretrial and the trial and the publicity than you do right now. Even if it's pleaded out, even with a suspended sentence, even with a gag order, there's still a court record. Joyce said, but this is all for her to decide, not Joyce. Ray stilled her with a raised hand. The Posts can afford any lawyer in the country, and as soon as the accusation is made public, the worst of the damage to the defendant is over. He has no incentive to speed things along. In fact, it's to his advantage to see that your reputation suffers as much as possible before a, tree, a plea or a trial. Patty bowed her head and asked what her father thought she should do. I'm going to call Chester now, he said. You go see Dr. Sipperstein and make sure you're okay. And get him as a witness, Patty said. Yes, and he could testify if need be, but there isn't going to be a trial, Patty. So he just gets away with it and does it to somebody else next weekend? Ray raised both hands. Let me, uh, let me talk to Mr. Post. He might be amenable to a deferred prosecution, kind of a quiet probation, sword over Ethan's head. But that's nothing. Actually, Patty cakes it's quite a lot. Maybe it'll be your guarantee that he won't do this to somebody else. Requires an admission of guilt, too. It did seem absurd to imagine Ethan wearing an orange jumpsuit and sitting in a jail cell for inflicting a harm that was mostly in her head anyway. She'd done wind sprints that hurt as bad as being raped. She felt more beaten up after a tough basketball game than she did now. Plus, as a jock, you got used to having other people's hands on you, kneading a cramped muscle, playing tight defense, scrambling for a loose ball, taping an ankle, correcting a stance, stretching a hamstring. And yet the feeling of injustice itself turned out to be strangely physical, even realer in a way than her hurting, smelling, sweating body. Injustice had a shape and a weight and a temperature and a texture and a very bad taste. Skipping the doctor's office scene. At home, one of her siblings was in the backyard doing something like juggling with screwdrivers of different sizes. Another was reading Gibbon Unabridged. 
The one who'd been subsisting on yoplait and radishes was in the bathroom, changing her hair color again. Patty's true home amid all this brilliant eccentricity was a foam-cushioned, mildewed, built-in bench in the TV corner of the basement. She took a carton of butter pecan ice cream down to the bench and answered no when her mother called down to ask if she was coming up for dinner. Mary Tyler Moore was just starting when her father came down after his martini and his own dinner and suggested that he and Patty go for a drive. Can I watch this show first, she said. Patty. Feeling cruelly deprived, she turned off the television. Her dad drove them over to the high school and stopped under a bright light in the parking lot. So, she said. So Ethan denies it, her dad said. He says it was just roughhousing and consensual. The autobiographer would describe the girl's tears in the car as coming on like a rain that starts unnoticeably, but surprisingly soon soaks everything. She asked if her dad had spoken to Ethan directly. No, just his father twice, he said. I'd be lying if I said the conversation went well. So obviously Mr. Post doesn't believe me. Well, Patty, Ethan's his son. He doesn't know you as well as we do. Do you believe me? Yes, I do. Does mommy? Of course she does. And what do I do? Her dad turned to her like an attorney, like an adult addressing another adult. You drop it, he said. Forget about it. Move on. What? Shake it off. Move on. Learn to be more careful. Like it never even happened? Patty, the people at the party were all friends of his. They're going to say they saw you get drunk and be aggressive with him. They'll say you were behind a shed that wasn't more than 30 feet from the pool, and they didn't hear anything untoward. It was really noisy. There was music and shouting. They'll also say they saw the two of you leaving later in the evening and getting into his car, and the world will see an Exeter boy who's going to Princeton and was responsible enough to use contraceptives, and gentleman enough to leave the party and drive you home. The deceptive little rain was wetting the collar of Patty's t-shirt. You're not really on my side, are you, she said. Of course I am. You keep saying, of course, of course. Listen to me. If the PA is going <coughs> to want to know why you didn't scream. I was embarrassed. Those weren't my friends. But do you see that this is going to be hard for a judge or a jury to understand? All you would have had to do was scream, and you would have been safe. Patty couldn't remember why she hadn't screamed. She had to admit that in hindsight it seemed bizarrely agreeable of her. I fought, though. Yes, but you're a top-tier student athlete. Shortstops get scratched and bruised all the time, don't they? On the arms, on the thighs. Did you tell Mr. Post I'm a virgin? I mean, was. I didn't consider that any of his business. Maybe you should call him back and tell him that. Look, her dad said. Honey, I know it's horrendously unfair. I feel terrible for you. But sometimes the best thing is just to learn your lesson and make sure you never get in the same position again. To say to yourself, I made a mistake, I had some bad luck, and then let it, let it, uh, let it drop. He turned the ignition halfway so that the panel lights came on. He kept his hand on the key. But he committed a crime, Patty said. Yes, but better to, uh, life's not always fair, Patty Cakes. Mr. Post said he thought Ethan might be willing to apologize for not being more gentlemanly, but well, did he like that? No, I didn't think so. Coach Nagel says I should go to the police. Coach Nagel should stick to her dribbling, her father said. Softball, Patty said. Softball season now? Unless you want to spend your entire senior year being publicly humiliated. Basketball's in the winter, softball's in the spring. When the weather's warmer? I'm asking you, is that really how you want to spend your senior year? 
Coach Carver is basketball, Patty said. Coach Nagel is softball. Are you getting this? Her dad started the engine. As a senior, instead of being publicly humiliated, Patty became a real player, not just a talent. She all but resided in the field house. She got a three-game basketball suspension for putting a shoulder in the back of a new Rochelle forward who'd elbowed Patty's teammate Stephanie, and she still broke every school record she'd set the previous year, plus nearly broke the scoring record. Augmenting her reliable perimeter shooting was a growing taste for driving to the basket. She was no longer on speaking terms with physical pain. In the spring, when the local state assemblyman stepped down after long service and the party leadership chose Patty's mother to run as his replacement, the Posts offered to co-host a fundraiser in the green luxury of their backyard. Joyce sought Patty's permission before she accepted the offer, saying she wouldn't do anything that Patty wasn't comfortable with. But Patty was beyond caring what Joyce did and told her so. When the candidate's family stood for the obligatory family photo, no grief was given to Patty for absenting herself. Her look of bitterness would not have helped Joyce's cause. Thank you. Thank you. Give the lights up there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so I will take some questions. Maybe a little, little less light on me, perhaps even. Just thank you. Much better. Again, we have three mics. One, two, there are three mics. Left, center, and right. Yeah. But you have to walk to them. And don't feel obliged to ask questions, although last night's questions in Philadelphia. You start on the left there, sir. Yeah, go. Oh, well, actually, you're all queued up there, sir. Yes. Um, at what point did you realize with freedom or decide that you were um, writing a book that sort of was engaging with um, or criticizing, critiquing a sort of post 9-11 American discourse, sort of um, obsession with the ideas of freedom, liberty, um, and rethinking a sort of American national identity? Or did you think about it at all? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I've, I have yet to think those things, but... Um, <laughs> honestly, my mind has gone perfectly blank regarding, re regarding the last nine years, and um, I've kind of reached that point. I've been... This is the last night of uh, three weeks of touring, and it is... I suddenly find myself wanting to shout things like, it's just a novel! <laughs> and, um, but, no, well, however, I'm restraining myself. There will be no meltdown at the podium, I'm sorry to report. <laughs> at least none that I'm foreseeing at this moment. Um, I honestly don't remember why I slapped the title Freedom on the proposal I sold three and a half years ago. I, uh, I, I do remember very specifically talking through the story of a, a book, actually, that bears rather little resemblance to what I actually wrote. With my editor, I had him over for drinks 
uh, and he's a big Italophile, and we were drinking these Negronis, which are Campari and gin. And we got very, uh, everything just, it was a very feel-good moment. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I, I, he would say, oh, that sounds like a marvelous idea for a short novel. I'll write, and he offered to write a contract, and I had, if I would write up a proposal, and I did, and I put the word freedom on it for some reason. I think just out of sheer pique with, with, with the misuse of the word in, in recent years. Um, and I'd never really given much thought to freedom as a concept, um, but, but I was annoyed with its repetition In, in the middle of this last decade. Uh, so, so then it just became kind of something to write toward, actually. And, uh, and I, I, I don't think I really was trying to engage with, with the moment particularly. I, I did want to set it pretty close to the present because it's much easier for me to imagine things in, in a time like the present. But um, that's a long-winded answer. We're getting to the end. Uh, But, but if, you, if you set a certain kind of complicated person in a complicated time and you pay careful attention to what's going on in their head, it, it starts to mirror stuff back. Just you sort of see the world reflected in this little eyeball. Unlovely metaphor. But <laughs> that's my best answer to that one. We're gonna... <laughs> we're gonna switch to the, okay. the, um, the, the woman in the red item. Hopefully, this is an easier question. This may no, no, be, it was a good question. Well, this may be absurdly an, an absurdly naive question, but how do you come up with your characters? They're they're so incredibly detailed. Can you speak a little bit to the process of kind of what you draw from and how you get them? Um, I, I I I worked for nine years basically. That's and most of that time is spent trying to come up with the characters, and it's. Um, Throwing out little bits of attempt to get somebody something going, and then trying to figure out why I'm not liking them, uh, and and why 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 I can't hear them, but mostly why I'm not liking them, or why I'm not able to find myself in them, or and and often if I'm not liking them, it's because they're too much like me, because uh, there's something about a character like me who I just feel obliged to pour the worst parts of myself into, and then of course it's horrible to read about them the next morning. Um, so it's 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 a process akin to self-analysis. I would I would say it's unbelievably boring notes in unbelievable quantities spent obsessively analyzing my own relationship to objects of my own making. So there's some good practical advice for you. <laughs> Best I got. The gentleman in the white T-shirt on the my left. Yeah. Hi. Um, my question may be out there. Um, it it's in regards to your late friend and uh, fellow writer David Foster Wallace, um, whose final book is going to be published next year. Um, and as far as I I've gathered, its topic is going to be boredom, which. Um, I would say substantially less sexy than freedom. <laughs> um, but 
they could go hand in hand, I guess. And I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on any of that? On the posthumous publishing, on boredom, you know, and if it has anything to do with your novel, which is not implying anything, but... And um, uh, basically, if you have any insight on what you think David was going for, or what he was trying to tease out in what's going to be his last novel. Uh, I've heard it's about boredom also. Um, I haven't read it, so I, I, I can't really tell you much about it. I mean, I've read little little snippets, but those are things that other people have read, too. Um, on its being published posthumously, it will, it will really depend on, on whether it's a fun thing to read. I mean, there is a demand by his fans for whatever whatever he left behind, and he did leave behind a very neat stack of um, disconnected manuscript pages, and I know his editor's been working very hard for the last year to, to pull it together into something that will work as a, as a book. Um, so it'll be already, it can, I can tell you, it will have been a collaborative effort between Dave and Michael Peach at Little Brown. Um, and. You know, boredom, is, it is a great subject, and, and it is, there are 20 ways, at least, that I have to look at Dave's death, and one of them is that he died of boredom. Um, simple as that. Guests on, the, on my right. Um, I want to ask a question uh, apropos of the fact that you said that this is the last of a three-week tour. So I'm sure you've been asked many of the questions many times. And what I wanted to ask you was whether there's any question that you haven't been asked about the book that you would like to answer, or <laughs> phrased in a slightly different way, whether anything about the reaction that you've gotten to your novel has surprised you or perplexed you or made you ask why certain things weren't being asked and certain things were being emphasized that are perhaps different from the way that you thought of the novel. So. Um, I, I, I haven't been following what's been written about it because uh, it's, it's just not a healthy thing for, for the writer to do. I was thinking more about what people have been saying people to People saying to me. Yeah. Um, I did a nice, uh, although surprisingly high stress online chat with, uh, they're incredibly stressful. I mean, you're just getting pelted with these questions and, you, and they are, you only, the little screen only holds like four at a time and you're, you know, by, <laughs> like, like, like a rat on a wheel, kind of deal with this online chat. But um, it was actually a great group of people. Uh, it's, a, it's a book club, little, little online magazine called The Rumpus uh, and I was very happy when they brought up a character named Eliza, which, which no one uh, has ever asked me about. And Eliza's the friend, Patty, Patty will go on immediately to make uh, a very peculiar friend when she goes to play basketball uh, in Minnesota. And I was grateful to have her name mentioned. I've been a little surprised that even though, actually it's not maybe surprising, it's been sort of confirming um, one of the characters gets, gets, actually two of the characters get pretty obsessed with the problem of world overpopulation uh, and, and describe it as the elephant in the room. 
And it continues, you know, on this, in, so far in three weeks of being out on the road, it continues to be the elephant in the room. No one ever, you know, basically all but nobody uh, mentions it. So. Do you want to say anything about it? <laughs> no, it's the elephant in the room. I mean, we, we, we um, do I want to say anything about it? In the book, or insofar as it's in the book? Um, no, it's, I try to be even-handed in this book, and my, my favorite character is a Republican, um, and I'm a Democrat, and I have, I have an interest in environmental issues, and I'm kind of nuts about birds, and and very quickly, if pursued at all seriously, hardcore conservation act advocacy, environmental thinking, um, concern about other species leads you into misanthropy quickly. Uh, and, and, and for me, as a novelist, that's a paradoxical position to be in because novels don't get written about plate tectonics or or even about you know squirrels and if and if they do get written about rabbits like rap watership down those are rabbits that bear an awfully strong resemblance to people <laughs> so novels are about people and you can't be a misanthrope and you, well you can you can be Thomas Bernhardt who is cited in the book um, you can be a misanthrope but you can't be a you can't be a misanthrope and write with the kind of sympathy for your characters uh, and, and a wish to connect with other people that, that motivate me. So um, I, I, I was happy to throw overpopulation in there because it is the logical extreme of, if mis yeah, you, you go beyond misanthropy to too many people. Um, so I wanted to strike that note, even, but, but, but to contain it. Best I can say on that. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, oh, uh, yes, we're going to um, read. Yeah, well, first, I, I just want to talk. thank you um, for uh, providing me with a, an incredibly wonderful uh, last week <laughs> reading your book. Uh, it was incredibly joyful and challenging and insightful, and thank you. Uh, but I do have two quick questions. One, I was reading it sitting in a bar, and uh, the gentleman sitting next to me looked at me and said, what are you reading? And I told him, and he said, is it good? And I said, it, it's wonderful. And he said, well, what's it about? And I said, hmm, hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, I said, well, it's good, uh, but <laughs> yeah. it's... That's my, that's my message, too. Yeah, yeah. So. I told him he should buy it, uh, but you know, I said, well, I think it's about uh, you know what our real feelings are and the consequences of our not really expressing them and concealing them and so forth. And and then my sounds son, like a thrilling read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't good at selling, but uh, I told him to have another drink. But the uh, and my second question is, and, and pardon me, have you canceled your subscription to the Atlantic yet? <laughs> uh, been a long time since I subscribed to the Atlantic. There you go. The <laughs> no, the, the Atlantic. No, um, that wasn't. That was not meant as a diss. But I think 
The Atlantic canceled its subscription to fiction about three years ago yeah. and um, have been employing someone to tell the world why fiction doesn't matter ever since that decision. I'm probably a little bit before, actually, to be historically accurate. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I haven't read the piece you're talking about because I don't read these things, but I have heard tell that, um, that the uh, <coughs> surprise, the Atlantic, B.R. Myers didn't like the book. <laughs> I, I, I gather that David Brooks didn't either. I feel like I'm, you'd almost feel like you were doing something wrong if they did. <laughs> was there a first, oh, the first question was, yeah, the I first, just, there was no question. Well, it was, well kind of, yeah, it was kind of a question. I mean, what do you consider the root theme of your book? Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but I, I, I'm so happy not to answer that question. Okay. Thanks. Good. Thank Sir. You. All these questions, I think, start in bars, apparently, because that's where I was having my last conversation about yours, and I was uh, saying great. that my, uh, my mother will be on the phone with me constantly and will say, I, I mean, I'm not the corrections. I'm not the corrections, <laughs> which essentially means she is the corrections. <laughs> Um, so I thank you for that, adding <laughs> to the, This has been a real shortcut in my life to just say, Mother, you are the corrections. Um, that aside, I was listening to our own Diane Ream uh, the other day, who did a roundtable on your book, The Corrections, which is about my mother. Um, and... I, I like this question so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was interested in that the constant refrain was that, well, he's so cynical. And I'm just wondering what you think about what that says about sort of the American reader, that you write about characters that may be cynical, and then you're cynical. Yeah, I don't know where to begin. I, 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 I feel like I don't feel cynical, but perhaps no one feels cynical. Cynical may be one of those words that you can only apply to other people. <laughs> I do think it tends to be applied most frequently by cynical people to other people. <laughs> um, although I, I take care not to read these things. that Someone did forward me um, this person who does a blog called Moby Lives. Uh, who is who's the one who encouraged uh, booksellers to um, break the rules and open the boxes that were that had the new Oprah pick, Oprah pick in it? And uh, and he, I believe he he called Oprah and me cynical. And it seemed to me that the, that it was a, it was a weird little poem in a way because it was such a cynical thing to say. I mean, isn't isn't that the cynical thing to say? So, um, I, I mean, I suppose it's possible that everyone then is cynical, but, but uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I think you're cynical and wonderful, so I appreciate it. And I don't think I'm cynical at all, but thank you for, for I guess. <laughs> um, yes, sir. A uh, quick question for you about your writing process. Both the corrections and freedom end up being these incredibly sprawling, multi-character, 
um, just incredibly uh, massive works over uh, long times. And I'm curious, as you're going through your drafting process, to what extent you, you know, rationalize everything with a, an, a detailed outline, and to what extent uh, sort of extensive research fits into your work, and, and then I guess contrasting that with just drafting until you find things you like and then rationalizing everything later. An academic question about your writing process. Um, to answer the last question first, I write pretty much as much as possible from the first sentence to the last. And, and if pages from the day before aren't, aren't good, then I go back to the point where they stop being good and try to move forward. So there is, yeah, there is no first draft, you know, sort of glorious rough draft, pull stuff out kind of process. Uh, I hate research. I'm very lazy about it, and, and I, I'm already discovering factual errors in the book, for which I apologize a little bit. Um, <laughs> and what was the third thing? Oh, outlines. Um, yeah, I mean, outlines. Outlines are really useful for an essay. Uh, and, but it's just, outlines are so cheap when, you have, when you're, you're spending year after year trying to get a novel going. I have lots of outlines, and they're all sort of dream outlines, you know, obviously unworkable even as I'm carefully not crossing things out, erasing, because it's going to be the definitive outline this time. Um, uh, so I had uh, less and less, less and less with the outline. So it becomes more of a rationalization process? No, it, it becomes... I take a lot of notes. I just type a lot of notes trying to, trying to think the story through and, and, and talk it through to myself and, and crack the many, many problems that stand in the way of, of writing it. Uh, and then I will re sometimes refer to those notes. But um, rationalizing, no, it's, well, no, there's very little post hoc work. Uh, it, it just kind of, it has to move forward linearly, the same way it will get read, for whatever okay. reason. Thanks. Thanks. Good question. We have time for one or two more, I think. Yeah, we'll do um, one in the middle here, and we'll, we'll do finish on the right here. Apologies not to take more. I was struck by how characters are always banging them up against one another in your book, whether in their neighborhoods or in their families. So other than Negroni, did something inspire or provoke you uh, in your community or in your family about this? Because it seems the most noble people in this book are also the most unhappy. Was I personally in like some dispute or in sort of butting heads with someone? No, no, did, did something inspire you? Did Does something inspire me? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think it goes back to an earlier question posed from the same Mike, uh, namely the problem of, of, of even accounting for what the book is about. Um, so I have to first think what the book is about and then see if there was anything that inspired it. I, 
I don't want you to stew too hard since it's the end of your tour, but... No, 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 no I'm so... I've just tried to... I, I wish I had time to tell you about some of the questions last night. This is just a breath of fresh air. Okay. Well, well, maybe you can ask about this, this address this issue about happiness, because all these people who are idealistic and communitarian and trying to be better are the ones who seem to be most free or happier when they're not doing what they think is in their heart and head. I kind of just want you to keep talking. Seriously. Thank you for the great question. Um, we'll take oh, I guess we'll take this last. Yep. Yes. This. Um, this is a fairly simple question, but it's two parts. And I'm just wondering, you're so gifted at describing really unlikable characters and or really unlikable aspects of human behavior, um, like Patty's parents, for example. Um, and I say, I haven't read Freedom, so I don't know if they evolve as characters. I'm sure they do. Um, I'm just wondering, you mentioned that there's a character in Freedom that's a Republican who's your favorite character. And I'm wondering, um, do you find yourself befriending your characters um, or, or finding yourself inspired by any of the characters in Freedom? And if so, which, which ones? Maybe the Republican you described? So the, oh, and I'm sorry, the first part of the question was, um, with regarding the, the unlikable characters, um, does that, writing about those characters, that it, does it take you as a writer to a dark place or do you find it cathartic? That's a lot of questions packed into the last question. Um, <laughs> I would, I would want to start by emphasizing um, that I, I happen to be a Democrat and that I know, I know personally, political conviction is a weird thing because it's so, it's so defining. You can like everything else about a person, but if you don't like their politics, it poisons everything. So I can imagine myself sitting in a, being, being one of the few Democrats in a mostly Republican audience listening to a well-known novelist talking about being a Republican and thinking, ugh, I'm not going to read him. Um, even if you say, oh, yes, but I have Democrats are my, my very best friends. Uh, and so I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm aware that it's probably even dangerous of me from a sales point of view to have said that. <laughs> Going back to the cynical question from the now empty mic. Um, but, uh, okay, so. I wasn't so much focusing on I understand, the fact that I understand. I understand. Republican, I, but just you, you no, started I'm, to talk about a character you liked and I was wondering more about that yes. character. Yes. Um, I, I don't form friendships with the characters. Uh, the, The attraction of people behaving badly is that it's interesting. And people behaving badly against their better judgment is not only interesting, but it's also often funny. Uh, and, and I like a book that's funny. So, and is it cathartic? I don't, catharsis has a, has a very technical meaning to me. It's, it's, it's when we all get together and sob over the sadness of the world or, and then sort of move on, be, get, be able to get up the next morning and continue with our lives. Um, 
But I would say that, that figuring out how to like this kid, this Republican kid in the book, um, was involved genuine change in myself. And I could not write the book until some, some small change had, some actual change in me, the person, had occurred. And, and that, in a way, the, the, the novel is a, the novel for the writer exists as an opportunity or a matrix for setting up situations that force me to change. Um, I'm, I'm trying to set up un things that are, I can't, that the person starting out can't write because I feel as if, if I, if I don't change, if I don't put everything on the line personally, then, then the pages won't be so alive and I won't have, I, I have a smaller chance of connecting with people. So, so to that, I don't know if that's cathartic. Um, I do know that there was, there was, a, there was a, just a, a tremendous sense of liberation and happiness once I got past disliking this kid and was able just to write him. And that was wonderful. Those were actually great weeks. And it was the easiest stuff to write in the whole book. And it was this character I'd hated for years and couldn't, and just really didn't even want in the book. I was like, why is he in the book? I can't stand this kid. And suddenly I, I figured out how to like him. And, and then, um, so that was happy. And I'm so happy you all came out tonight. And I'll Thank see you. some of you in the lobby. Thank you.